Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to The Liquidator, the strictly 100% unofficial fan-powered West Bromwich Albion podcast. This time, the joy of winning in Fergie time against Sir Alex's son, Darren Ferguson. Tee-hee! Thoughts on Albion's new signings, Jordan Hookill or Hookill, Jason Malumbi, rumours of a Troy Deeney deal too... And as a fan with a hoodie helps out, it's the talk of the towels, the ones to assist on the throw-ins we use and the towel we threw in against Arsenal on a League Cup night to forget. I'm joined, as usual, by Chris Lepkowski, author of From Buzaglo to Ballas. And Chris, before we crack on with this, just worth saying, what a great night you set up with Sir Gary Megson at the Bescott Stadium to officially launch your book, Buzaglo to Ballas. It's been out for a while, but COVID put paid to the launch at the time. But it was a brilliant night. Gary had just such a fund of stories, and he's so obviously loved by the Albion faithful who turned up as well. Yeah. Uh, hi, Adrian. It was um, it was a brilliant night, and and the, you know it's it, it, <laughs> Gary is so brilliant at these things. He actually he'd come down earlier during the day to do a piece with a, a couple of journalists, and by the time he came round to the suite that we were using, and I, I kind of explained the format, and I mentioned that we'd have a twenty minute break in the middle, and he said, "Oh, forget that." Don't, don't worry about the break. Let's just crack on. Go all the way through. I'll start at, at half seven, 20 to eight, something like that. And I'll keep going till about quarter to 11. And he was good to his word. And, and I was absolutely knackered by the end of it because Gary insisted on standing up. And, and that kind of meant that I had to stand up because it would have looked a bit odd with me sat down and him stood for three hours. <laughs> And I, it was like um, it was like turning a key in his back and just releasing him. He was absolutely brilliant. And and some of the stories, some of which are in the book from Bazaglo to Ballis, some of which I'd heard for the first time, were were absolutely brilliant. And you know, if you were there and you heard the Jack Charlton story or the Russell Holt Prozone story, then you'll know exactly what you mean about about some of the brilliant tales that he came out with. And and the the reception he got was fantastic, and I'd like to thank every supporter who who supported the event. I know they were there for for Gary Megson, not not for the launch of from Basaglo to Ballis, but you know they played their part too. You know there were some great questions from the floor, there was some great engagement, and I think Gary came off, and I know he came out really really appreciative of the brilliant reception he got. And I actually had a message from him on the Friday and. He'd just come back from Gulliver's Kingdom with his grandson and he said he was absolutely knackered and he didn't know how he'd done that journey every day for four years. But I'll tell you what, thank God he did because some of the stories we got from him on this occasion were just absolutely brilliant. And of course, we are the club we are now because of his input 20 odd years ago. So a big thank you to everyone concerned, including S4A who helped organise the event. Yeah, the shareholders for Albion. We will have Gary on the podcast at some point in the future. I know he's agreed to to do that. So looking forward to having maybe, I don't know, we can maybe have a bumper-double episode given the, the massive amount of stories that he's got and, and how well he tells them. Before we crack on with current Albion stuff, just a reminder, you might be looking for a new job. You might be looking for promotion in your existing job. If you are, then think about the training company, BCTG, who sponsor this podcast. They offer more than 200 fully funded 
adult skills courses. So if you want to gain new skills, if you want to get promotion, if you want to earn more, then this is a chance to get skills and qualifications at no cost to yourself. Now, the courses are flexible, so they're designed to fit in with your work and your personal life. And at the end of it, you will get a nationally recognized qualification. Well, as long as you do the work, you will. The courses include NCFE, Level 2 and Level 3 accredited qualifications in management, customer service and IT, as well as healthcare courses in mental health, end of life and dementia care. Each of the courses lasts around 12 weeks, so that's not very long, is it? Three months, and it's only about three hours a week on average, and they're delivered online with support from tutors at a time to suit you, so you can fit it in with all your other commitments as well. And they are free to everyone aged 19 and over, whether you're working, whether you're unemployed, as long as you live in a postcode area somewhere within the West Midlands. So give them a call, 0121 544 6455, 0121 544 6455, or have a look at their website, bctg.org.uk, if you just want to burnish your skills, maybe get yourself a new job, maybe get yourself promotion. So then, Peterborough United, a Saturday night on Sky, still a great following by the Albion, it has to be said, Chris. And it wasn't the prettiest of games, but how pleased are we to have a team that instead of being done in the fourth minute of time added on, we do it to them. We're the team doing the doing. That's nice. I said at the end of the game, that was the kind of result that that you look back on and think, you know, that's that's a game that helped us win promotion or get into the position we're in. It was a really really difficult game to watch. I think Peterborough actually did a fairly good job on Albion. You know, they did restrict us um, in certain respects. They never really threatened. I never felt that we were going to lose that game, but they did a a fairly good job in neutralising us. And, you know, Oshoi got into position right at the end. It was a great end to the game. And you could see by the celebrations, Ismail's celebrations, the players' celebrations, and of course the away end, just how important and how you know how enjoyable that win was right at the death it, it was a difficult game make no mistake but it was a great way to win a football match yeah I can only think of one save that Sam Johnson had to make as you say Peterborough sort of matched us up really didn't they 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 tried to battle it out with us and match our intensity but didn't create the chances that we created I mean we didn't create too many but Jordan Hugill once he came on had a couple of headers that looked quite useful we had I think one effort cleared off the line as well Carlin Grant looked lively again so lots of positive to take out of a, a pretty unappealing game that sense of Albion's resilience and their durability as well. I mean, bear in mind, Callum Robinson wasn't available from kickoff because he'd gone down with COVID. Kyle Bartley had to go off at half time, one of the most experienced members of the team and the, the linchpin in central defence. And it's like, OK, no fuss. Connor Townsend, who had fitted in at centre left back late on against Sheffield United. I don't know if you picked that up in that game, Chris, but Adam Reach got his Adam Reach got his run out at left wing back and, and Townsend had tucked inside for that game. That's a new string to his bow, really playing left centre back. Yeah. He's done that a couple of times, I think, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 something that he didn't have to his game when he joined us. So we have Townsend able to 
sit into that role. Reacher had played in the League Cup game against Arsenal, which we will talk about. Now looking up to match fitness as well, playing at left wing back. And then Dan Garner, who I suspect wouldn't have started had Robinson been fit. Because I think Ismail has nailed his colours to the mast, really, seeing Dan Garner as a player and come on when opposition defenders are tired. Again, he, he doesn't, I, I don't think, I just don't think Dan Garner has got the attributes to work over 90 minutes in an Ismail team. That's not to write him off, but he's an explosive player. I don't think you get the best out of him by making him run like a, a workhorse for even 55, 60 minutes. Anyway, he went off. Hugill comes on, looks lively as well. So, you know, that's a team having to cope with a degree of adversity, cope with a couple of setbacks and tactical changes as well. And it does them okay without any fuss, that sense that the players know what they're about. And that, for me, is one of the the great heartening early signs of Valeria and Ismail. The players know what their jobs are. If they have to change their job in the course of a game, they can do that as well. There's a degree of flexibility about the individual. So, you know, these are really positive early signs. I think so. And and I know we'll come on to this later, but I think it was an important result for Ismail because we'd seen the changes against Arsenal and, you know, there was an expectation that we would get a result at Peterborough. What I really liked or what I'm really coming to like about this team is that it, it's getting under the skin of other managers, other players, other people. You know, the whole narrative during the game was about the towels. It's a little bit, it's a little bit low grade in some respects to, to keep talking about that because it, it does detract from what is a very decent side, a very good side that we've got. But, you know, we've, we've become this team that actually people don't like, that, that people aren't very keen on for all sorts of reasons, the way we play and the, the methods we use. And I don't mind that. I've, I've not got a huge issue with that while we're successful. And, um, you know, it was a big, big result in that respect. And I think it showed that we can have off days, we can have performances where everything doesn't go to plan and we can still get the result at the end of it. And that was really important from a character point of view, as much as anything else. I think it showed that the players have got that in them and the manager's got that in him. Hugill looked quite lively to me when he came on. I'm still not sure how to pronounce his name. Hugill, Hugill, Jordan Hugill. But <laughs> I thought I thought he gave us an aerial threat that we don't have. I mean, we like to cross balls into the box and we, we can't say that goals have been a problem this season. The goals have been flying in, but we lack that out-and-out striker. So he's come in. He's a player who played alongside Callum Robinson when Robinson was coming through at Preston, so the two of them in tandem may well be uh, a threat. Obviously, Robinson wasn't fit on Saturday, but I think Hugill, although he didn't really succeed at Norwich, and he didn't succeed in the Championship at Norwich either, we ought to bear that in mind. He he played for a promotion team last season, only played a few games for them. Obviously, they've got Timu Puki, who is their number one striker and who continues to thrive. But they decided he was surplus to requirements in the Premier League. But we've all seen opposition teams lining up with these experienced championship players who've been around a bit, who are streetwise. And from that point of view, Hugh Gill seems to me like a, a very sensible signing. It's quite clear to me that we're not going to be spending any money. And fans are asking us on Twitter, where's the Pereira money gone? Well, we don't know. We know we know no more than you. And if the money has been absorbed in 
a higher wage structure than most clubs have in the championship. And if the money from the parachute payments has been absorbed into a higher wage structure than is normal for most clubs in the championship, and therefore there isn't any money available to spend on transfers, then I think the chief executive, Shuki, can ought to come out and tell us because the expectation of the fans, based on what he himself had said in statements at the start of the season, was that we would have a transfer budget. Now, a transfer budget can include transfer fees and it can include higher wages. But I think fans were certainly expecting from what had been said that we would be spending money on players. At the end of it, if they're good enough to get us promoted, it doesn't matter whether we spent whether we spent money on buying them or not. But we need to know. I think we ought to know. We have a right to know as fans what's happened to that Pereira money. I think there's also got to be a, a kind of realisation that you know, there is no such thing as a free transfer. If you bring a player in who's maybe at the end of his contract, the chances are you'll be pay, paying a premium on his wages, you'll be paying more. You'll be certainly, definitely paying more for the agent fees. So that does add up. It, you know, the, a lot of people do get carried away with net spend and what we spend on player fees in terms of transfer fees. But that doesn't define your your spending. The spending is very much based around the, or the club's rather budget around what they spend annually on a player's wages. And there might be a fee absorbed into that, what they spend on agent fees as well. So, you know, it's a bit of a misnomer to say that we haven't spent, we have spent, but we, what we have done is spent it on player wages, whether it's on loan or on freeze. And I think what's very apparent about this team is that we're strengthening to, to suit exactly what Ismail needs, the right player rather than the best player. Now, that might mean, for instance, you know, Matt Grimes is available from Swansea, who I think would be an absolutely brilliant addition at three or four million, which is the, the price being cited as we speak. But would he necessarily suit an Ismail team? I don't know. And and that's that's one of the big conundrums is, is finding that we have a very different way of playing. We have a very set way of how we go about matches and the players that we bring in have to be absolutely bang on to to fit into that so midfielders need to be of a certain type strikers and wide players have to perform certain duties so I've been fairly okay with what we've done so far in the transfer window would I've liked to have seen more invested certainly in terms of the Pereira money yes but our record for making signings of 10 12 15 million whatever isn't actually very good what we've done very well over the many many years is find good players for less money who have gone on to be you know gone on to to go from strength to strength when they have arrived so I'm not that I'm not that you know absorbed by the the amount we've spent in terms of transfer fees because ultimately we are still paying players wages which all goes towards the overall budget of what we have to spend Sure. But a bit of clarification from the board, I think, would not go amiss on that. Them making the points that you have made, I say the board, the chief executive, that would not go amiss. Because at the end of the day, we all understand that players cost money and the wages are significant. We're playing for decent players. I mean, Hugill's coming from a, a Premier League club. I'm presuming we're having to pay his wages or some of his wages. He'd previously played for West Ham. So he ain't going to come cheap. In terms of Hugill, by the way, I mean, he's 
career scoring record isn't phenomenal. It's kind of somewhere between one in three, one in four, scores you know a, a goal every three or four games. So he's, he's not a prolific scorer, but he gives us something that no other player in that squad does, which is a real front man's aerial ability and the ability to hold the ball up and, and out-muscle defenders. So if you look at our four forward players who who we might select from Matt Phillips, Callum Robinson, Carlin Grant, Grady Dan Garner, none of them has that amazing aerial ability. So he gives us a bit of traditional orthodox centre-forward play. So I think from that point of view... He looks like a, a decent signing. The other guy we've got on loan with a view to signing him is Malumbi from Brighton. Now, Malumbi went, ironically, to Preston, one of Hugill's former clubs. He started off pretty well on loan there, but didn't really hit it off when they changed their manager. I think when Alex Neal was replaced at Preston. But my mate, who was a Brighton fan, and that's his ultimate parent club, says he's got a fantastic engine. And he's trying to, oh, yeah, that works. And that fits with what Valerian Ismail wants from, from a midfielder. You've got to be able to run. So my Brighton mate reckons that's a pretty decent loan signing for us. We ought to get your mate from Brighton on here because it seems that they're the go-to club these days. I've become the new Grimsby Town. Um, I've not seen much of Malumbi, so I've I've got no opinion on him as yet as to his strengths, weaknesses, or whether he's a good or, or otherwise signing. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him play, and that was an area we really did need to strengthen and arguably maybe still do need to bring somebody in. It'll be interesting to see what we do between now and the end of the window. I think we're still a little bit short in certain areas. Maybe another midfielder to challenge the the, the two regulars in there of Mowat and Livermore. I think certainly maybe another striker. Deeney's been mentioned, but I'm not so sure about that one. I'd, I'd like to see us do something before the window closes. Whether we will or not, I don't know. I think what the, the one reflection I do have is that if you'd told me that the only big hitter we would lose would be Pereira, then I would have been fairly satisfied with that. I think, you know, we have to take the bonus that the, that we're keeping a very good goalkeeper in Sam Johnston, who who will be saying by the looks of it. And we haven't really lost anyone else who you would consider to be a first-team regular. Sawyers wasn't part of the team anymore, and it, and it was very difficult to see where he would fit in. He's now gone on to Stoke, and I think that's a good deal. You know, I don't think we miss anything by him leaving with all due respect to, you know, what he's done in the past. So I, I think um, it would be nice to, to bring in a couple of others before the window closes. But, you know, it hasn't been the worst window for us by any stretch. And, and you know, there are some positives to keeping Sam Johnston, certainly. And, and maybe we could have got more for Pereira, but we'll never know. And I've got my doubts that we would have actually got rid of him had he not moved to uh, Al-Hilal. Yeah, uh, Malumbu, Malumbu's record, by the way. I'm, I'm always tempted to say Malumbu is the new Malumbu, is Malumbu. Uh, Malumbu, uh, again, a bit like Matt Clark. Brighton had him, and I think Brighton, like a few Premier League teams, have this recruitment system where they snap up promising young players from lower divisions, or in, in this case, they signed him from Ireland, where he grew up, and he's obviously a Republic of Ireland international Malumbu. But both he and Matt Clark had not played for Brighton in any significant way. I don't think Matt Clark had started a game. Obviously, he's out now with a, a hamstring problem, but he looks like a really good addition to the squad. Malumbi had only played a couple of games before going out 
on loan, a couple of games in the Premier League for Brighton. But then he had 40 games on loan at Millwall, 16 at Preston, as I say, and, and I think the, the incoming manager at Preston didn't like him. But all the signs are that he's an energetic midfielder. He can play deep defensive midfield. He can play attacking midfield. He's got a point to prove he's a young player coming through. So, again, it fits a mould, doesn't it? It looks positive. Hugill probably less so because he's not a young player, but he's a player maybe still with a point to prove because his career's lost a little bit of focus in the last couple of years. So all the signs are that he's kind of a good character as well who will want to impress and move forward. What do you think of Troy Deeney? Because, I mean, it, it's it's we've been linked with Deeney in the past more than once. And obviously, he's a West Midlands lad, grew up in Chelmsley Wood on the edge of Sully Hull. He's a blue nose, but uh, he used to play for Warsaw. I personally would be very happy to have Troy Deeney here because I think he he knows what this level of football is about. He's streetwise and I think he's a good pro. He's not a prolific scorer either. It costs a lot in wages, I imagine, Troy Deeney. But I, I think he's he's the kind of guy who, wherever he is, he wants to he wants to make an impression. He'll want to make an impact, and he want one last medal. I think he's a good player. You know, he's he's proven over the years that what his strengths are. I think he's a, a character who would certainly give us that extra bit of edge and make us even more disliked by certain clubs. <laughs> um, my, my one concern is that he is he is now of an age and he has had a fairly checkered recent history of injuries and, and things going on that have prevented him from playing. So I'm a little bit wary from that point of view. But, you know, in terms of strengthening us, he does improve us. So I certainly wouldn't be averse to that. I think he'd be a decent signing if we could if we could agree a deal. We'll have to see what the transfer window brings, but I'd certainly give a, a thumbs up to Troy Deeney. And having seen this team play now, I think Deeney would fit into it. We are becoming the new Stoke City, aren't we? The way that Stoke, everybody hated Stoke under Poulis. But uh, it, it, as I say, it's a tough balance because you, you, you don't, one of the things about being an Albion fan is that generally people like you. You know, they like your club and they like the fans and nobody hates us. And I, I hope from a fan point of view, that doesn't change. Although I'm very happy from a team point of view that it does change, you know. They'll still say, nice fans, shame about the team, as we beat them in the last minute again. <laughs> yeah, people people tend to like clubs they beat, you know, so I haven't got any problems with that. I think it I think the comparisons with, with any Pulis or Stoke team, I think end with the towel. You know, we are we do play a very different way. We do a lot of our play a lot of our football in the high third of the pitch. We do get it down there quickly, but, you know, we, we, we play a different way to the way that Stoke used to under Pulis, and indeed we used to. And I think that comparison, whilst it will be inevitable, I think people will draw upon it. I think it's an invalid one. Well, I was only making the comparison, uh, it, only in the sense of people not liking us, that's all. Not, uh, yeah, to be there. That, not, not in terms of playing style. I mean, we, yeah. we've had it, we yeah. had a good chew over that last time, and I think we both agree this, this isn't... Pulis Mark too, by any stretch, but just purely in terms of a team that you think, oh, bloody hell, you know, they're going to make life really difficult for our players and they'll probably beat us and we won't like it. You know, that's the that's the link. The one observation I do have is that I'm, the one, one concern perhaps is that if the results don't start going our way, if teams start to suss us out a little bit, a bit like Peter did and Blackburn in the second half did, 
what do we do next? You know, because effectively what we've been doing so far is effect, uh, replacing player for player and trying to do things the same way, but with different players. There comes a point where we need to have the ability to adjust our style, maybe adjust the way we play to, to get that result. And at the moment, I haven't seen evidence of that. And, and that's been OK because we've got the results. We haven't needed to do that. But there is a, a small concern that we are extremely one shape only and, and you know everything we do has to fit that but there will be occasions where we have to adjust the way we play and and I hope we can do that and I hope Ismail has the ability to to force that and to deliver that. In fairness Hugill does give us that variation a little bit but uh, I want to talk about the Arsenal game the League Cup game the 6-0 home defeat by Arsenal and that struck me during that game because it was an experimental lineup, and we can talk about whether or not we should be trying to win the cups and so on. But even within that game, with the lineup that we had, full of youth players, six debutants in the starting lineup, eight players making their debut in that match overall. Now it was clear that the high line that we were playing, because that team lined up pretty much as the first team would play in terms of its system, that when the high defensive line wasn't working and was being thoroughly exploited, we seemed unable to change. Now, you can argue it wouldn't have made any difference given they were up against Aubameyang and then later on Lacazette comes on and you've got Odegaard pulling the strings in midfield. Maybe we could have put 10 men behind the ball and still lost 6-0 with that lineup. It is quite possible. But that did disturb me. I thought, well, surely if the high line is being penetrated so often then we're going to change that. We have to change that. Maybe switch to a four, maybe drop one or two players deeper than that. And we didn't. Now, it may be that Ismail just thought, well, those are the players I've got now. I've got to stick with that lineup. But the fact that we were unable to close it down in any way against Arsenal, where in all honesty, we could have lost by double figures in that match. We could easily have lost 10 nil. In a, in a professional first-team game, it's like, hello, are we never going to change anything? And we didn't seem to change anything throughout the course of that game. I didn't take any joy at all or pride from that game. You know, I saw the team and I was shocked at how many changes had, had been made. We obviously lost the player during the warm-up, which didn't help. Yeah, to look... That's right. And I just thought it was too much. I thought there were too many changes to the team. It just basically smacked of, this is the Carabao Cup. I don't care about this. I'm only caring about the league, which is absolutely fine. But if you're going to do that, then let the fans in for less. or let them in for free even or, or, or for much reduced rate. It didn't sit well with me. I am of the view that you go into every game, you should be trying to win that match. I think that... Um, there's absolutely no reason why, with an international break looming, we couldn't have played a strong team against Arsenal. I've never bought into this narrative that cup runs impact on league form. There is no evidence. Nobody has ever presented evidence, be it statistically or research or, or, or analysis, that suggests that cup runs impede league forms. And for some reason now, it's become the norm. So many managers do it, not just at the top end of the game, but throughout the leagues. You see 
cup teams going out with depleted squads, with youngsters thrown in. I think one of the big mistakes of recent years was the scrapping of the emergency loan system, whereby you could send out a player to go out on loan and then bring him back after 28 days if you needed to or any or, or you know have a recall option on him that option that that transfer isn't available now so it means that clubs like ours who have got a fairly vibrant youth setup and have got a lot of youngsters on the ranks it means clubs like ours are effectively either loaning players out for the whole season which is of no use to us in the short term or having to stockpile players and that inevitably makes managers think, well, we've got a lot of youngsters here. I'll tell you what, I'll play them in a cup game. And that's one of the problems of having this or not having this emergency loan option in place that was in place many years, whereby we could send out a player to go out on loan. And then after 28 days, we would have an immediate recall on that player if we needed him. And without that option, it means that we've stockpiled the squad with young players and inevitably a manager wants to get them involved when is he going to get them involved well a cup game in the you know in the first round of the Carabao Cup is the ideal time to do it it's not ideal I didn't like it I I didn't agree with it I was embarrassed by the results did it have any impact on the Peterborough game I don't know the cynics the critics will say well yes it did because we went sent out our first team and we managed to get a last minute win you know but I've never bought the the notion that Cup runs impede on league form, and for that reason, I don't agree with with completely reshaping the team for a cup game. It, I think it demeans it. I think it's disrespectful to fans, and I really wish and I really hope we don't do that in the FA Cup. But I fear we will. The FA Cup may be seen in a slightly different way. I don't know. For those of you who haven't heard it, I made a film which is quite new this season, called Keepy Uppy. Look it up on YouTube. And it is exactly about this, about how the Premier League, the existence of the Premier League, the way the Premier League was set up and continues to exist to hive off the majority of TV income to the big clubs. It means that the only league that any team wants to be in is the Premier League. So forget your cup competitions, the Carabao and the FA Cup, because even winning those is only worth a fraction of what being in the Premier League is in. But the financial inequality at the top of football also means that when you do get into the Premier League, you've got no chance of winning it if you're a club like Albion, if you're a club outside the the big six. And it's just the nonsense of a treadmill that football has become. So as fans, we would say, look, the chances of Albion winning the English League title are pretty slim historically that is true the chances of Albion winning a cup competition traditionally yeah, not bad we're in with a shout aren't we but now when a club like ours doesn't try in the cups I just think it's a sad reflection on the state of football and it's a situation that Valerian Ismail's caught up with and it's a situation that our owners are caught up in it's a situation that we as fans are caught up in but unless things change I think long term that's a bad thing for football. And I think that you look at clubs like West Bromwich Albion, part of the backbone, part of the strength in depth of English football, unless our club's supporters feel we have a chance of winning anything and being at the top table, not every week, not season in, season out, but when we have a good team and when things go well for us. If we haven't got a chance of winning things, then I think a generation of fans will come on, will, will think, well, what's the point? What is the point? 
Or, in a sense, the Generation fans won't come on because they'll never see a team in their locality winning anything. I, I just think there's, there's a bigger political thing here for me as well. Towns like West Bromwich need to be seen as to do well and, and thrive on the national scene. You know, we're, we're now probably two generations in to fans who have grown up with teams effectively tossing away opportunities in the cup. It's become the norm. And, you know, I, I made my feelings quite clear after and during that game. And, you know, people were replying to me saying, oh, well, it's only the Carabao Cup. I don't care about the cup. That's the wrong attitude. Every competition you enter is an opportunity to get to a final. It's an opportunity to win a trophy. What's the point otherwise? Now, of course, no club is going to withdraw from a cup competition because there will be there would be penalties, there would be breaches of contract. There, there are people like Sky Sports who have invested money into the Carabao Cup. So you can't withdraw from it. But effectively, it's what we did. We withdrew from the mm. Mm. Carabao Cup by selecting that team and that's wrong and and no it doesn't matter what happens in the league you cannot justify doing that in in what is a competitive game it is a first team fixture for West Bromwich Albion if they want a yeah. development competition have one if they want to have a friendly behind closed doors where our youngsters get tonked by a bunch of professionals go ahead and have one don't insult me as a paying customer by saying here is a first-team fixture in the name of the traditional great club that West Bromwich Albion is, and then don't make a real attempt to win the game. I, I was very, very disappointed. And for the young players coming through as well, you know, this is a chance for them to learn. We are told, really? Getting hammered 6-0 by players who are two or three leagues above them in quality? I, I don't think so. I think if you'd had a team which interspersed your regular first-team players with one or two kids, then that might be justifiable. But if you've got a, a youngster playing alongside, let's say, Kyle Bartley, if you've got uh, a youngster, which I think was the plan, in fairness, to have uh, Tullock starting, but not against, not up against Zahor, alongside Matt Phillips. Those young players, even if you lose the game, they're learning something. I don't think our young players will have learned very much at all. It's a serious point because if you speak to any ex-player, and I've spoken to many over the years, they will tell you how damaging defeats like that are when you're younger. You know, the, the whole notion, oh, well, you know, it'll be good for their development. Will it? You know, how many of those players will go on to become established members of our first team? I'm not sure many of them will. A few might. But by the way, you mentioned Zahor there. What an absolute shambles of a player he's become. I mean, a, f a friend of mine has worked with him uh, at a previous club and he warned me when we signed him that we were getting a real dud. And I kind of, sort of thought, well, let's wait and see. But my God, his performance against Arsenal, I'm told he was even worse in the midweek game a couple of weeks ago, which I missed. Oh, he was. He was worse against. It was worse when he came on against Luton. In fact, on Twitter, I got some flack for suggesting that by his standards, Zor didn't have a bad game against Arsenal, and that I felt at least he tried. Now, I don't know whether did he? I thought so. Uh, there was a moment when he went down quite early on after he came on, and I did feel he was like looking to be taken off quite early, but he didn't, and and then had a header that was well saved by the Arsenal keeper. But in any event, I mean, the truth is that Zahor isn't good enough to play 
for West Bromwich Albion. He's not good enough to play at, at the top level of the championship. And if we can offload him, and I, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Where you you end up, you, you don't really want to be horrible to a footballer if you think they're not trying. I think you're entitled to be. I'm not sure that's true. So I just think he really isn't good enough. And and one scouting session. Notwithstanding, he'd scored a few goals for Cardiff in the season before we signed him. But, yeah, you know, he's just not a championship player at the level that, that we require. And and that's where I'm not sure whether it's a bit cruel for fans to pick on him. On the other hand, he will be earning a stack of money on the basis that he is good enough. So, I don't know. Talking about the players, by the way, uh, who played for uh, Albion, the young players who played for Albion in that game. I liked Tom Fellow's touch on the ball. He played up front and looked to me to have good, close control. I liked, liked the look of him. Quite a few fans were talking up Kevin Castro, who, again, I don't want to be unkind to a, a young player. I'd be astonished if Kevin Castro has a, a career in the Championship. He ran around and he's eye-catching because of his physique and his dreads flailing behind him. But end product, not very much. And uh, yeah, uh, there, there, were a, there were a couple of the defenders who you'd like to see again. Taylor in central defence. Ingram, wide on the right, yeah, give, give him another look. But on, on that evidence, that there isn't a whole lot of really impressive talent knocking on the door at the... Demanding to be played, is there? No, I, I agree with Taylor. I really liked him. It's it's quite scary to think that I, I remember his dad playing and and didn't think his dad was that old old enough to have a, a son playing professional football. But he looked very impressive. Was that Taylor who played for Blues? Yeah, Martin Taylor, who who famously got chased around the Midlands by Croatian press. But that's another story. Castro, I thought, was um, an interesting one. I thought first. I mean, the first challenge he made was, was shocking. You know, it was a really uh, loose and an ill-disciplined challenge. But he had he showed moments where he 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 looked like he had decent ball skills, but a lack of awareness let him down at times, and some poor decision making. It reminded me at times of Soming Choi, just this explosive ball of energy that doesn't really know what it's going to do next, and. I think there's a potential there. I, I can't see him featuring too much in, in the coming period. I think he, he's the kind of player who maybe needs a loan somewhere. It's a lower league club who can maybe develop him a little bit. I don't think he's quite ready, but certainly I thought Taylor, I was really impressed with him. I thought he he's somebody who has a potential to to grow into that role with us, hopefully if not maybe somewhere on loan. Yeah, well, look, uh, we will have an episode next week, so stay tuned to your socials. And uh, we're trying to vary the publication date of the podcast this season, not least because if we have games on a Friday or even games on a Saturday, it might be possible to get the podcast to you on a Sunday, which for some people will be an easier day to listen. So, you know, we're trying to make it more listener friendly, but still hit one episode a week, one way or another. Before we do close, by the way, just to encourage you, if you can, to support Smethic Food Bank. They're after all sorts of long-life food to help some of the neediest members of the community closest to the Hawthorne. So they're looking for stuff like pasta sauce, tin tomatoes, coffee, cereals. There is a full list of the foodstuffs they need and details of where you can drop them off at smethic.foodbank.org.uk. That's smethic.foodbank.org.uk. 
Now, onto the trivia question. And uh, Chris, you asked this question because Alex Mowat had scored a goal really early on in the Blackburn game, didn't you? And you were posing a question about an even earlier goal that you had seen. Yeah, well, Lee Hughes scored after about 11 seconds, I believe. But we, we had a, and I did put the question out, was that the quickest ever Albion goal or or has there been a quicker one? And we did get a response to this. Yeah, Paul Bridges, thank you to you, Paul. We, oh, we had a couple of responses in fairness, it should be said. Paul said, Lee Hughes may well have scored Albion's quickest goal against Stockport in March 2000. He said, Ronnie Allen scored one against Man United somewhere between 12 and 15 seconds. That shows you what timekeeping was like in the old days. That was in December 1951. So Paul said it was at that point Albion's quickest. However, Paul then went away and did a bit more research. So thank you, Paul. We doff our cap to you. Stop the press, he says. The 2000 Albion Review says 11 seconds for that Lee Hughes goal. But it goes on to say that George James scored one after five seconds in December 1924 against Nottingham Forest. Growing up as a kid, I remember the the fastest goal that was ever scored that we knew was a guy called Jim Fryatt, who scored one for, I think, Oldham after four seconds. And Jim Fryatt, I think, was still playing or had not long retired when I started watching football. But what kind of timekeeping did they have in the 60s? Never mind back in... Never mind back in 1924 when this goal happened after five seconds from George James. You know, I mean, now everything's filmed. You can literally go back and watch it and time it again, can't you, from the start? But, uh, yeah, in those days, it was a little bit more uh, little bit more theoretical, I reckon. Anyway, go on. What you got a trivia question for us this week? Yeah, we're coming up towards the 20th, 20th anniversary, incredibly, of... Us tonking Manchester City 4-0 on the 8th of September 2001. Who, who were the scorers that day? Who were the scorers when we beat Manchester City yeah. 4-0? Okay. Um, I, think, I actually think it was one of the rare occasions that we scored a penalty that season, by the way. Mm. Um, I seem to recall. But yeah, we did We did give them a good, a good beating that day. Kevin Keegan was manager of, of Man City, I seem to recall. That was that promotion season then, the Gary Megson promotion season, 2001-2002. Yeah, so yeah, that'll well. give you a, a question in terms of summer players. Just, just by the by, and as I say, we're hoping to get Gary Megson on the podcast and we'll, we'll, we'll really do justice to, to Gary when we speak to him. But one of the stories that really struck out to me that I'd never heard, Chris, from that night at, at the Beskitt Stadium was a story of a time when he was at Stockport this was a really scary story to me. The time he was at Stockport and some of the Stockport players had got into a bit of an altercation, presumably went out drinking with some guys from Manchester. And then these guys, it turned out, were connected with this really scary gang from Eccles in next door to Salford in Manchester. And they turned up at Hedgley Park at Stockport demanding money. And Gary Megson... I had to offer him ten grand in cash. It's just, and I've just listened to um, a BBC documentary about the Massey gang. There was a guy called Paul Massey. It was a, a gangster who's now dead in Manchester, Greater Manchester. And I wonder if that was his gang. But it's a great documentary series, by the way. But also, what that just came out of left field. That story from Gary Megson, incredible stuff. Yeah, when I was. Um chatting to him about what we'd talk about or what we would talk about and 
I really wanted to touch upon some of his stories of, of the managers he played for, but also he then mentioned, well, make sure you ask me about Blackpool and Stockport because I've got a couple of stories about that. And I wasn't expecting that, <laughs> if I'm honest. It was scary. He had to get 10 grand in cash because this gang had put the frightness on them. What you didn't mention is that they turned up Tudor, ready to um, ready to start administering you know, treatment to the players. So, um, I mean, he had yeah. to act very quickly there. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it was a you know heart in the mouth story from uh, Gary Megson. Brilliant night. Uh, just to say, by the way, if you want to support this podcast, we have got our brilliant Liquidator podcast mugs. Just put Liquidator podcast mugs into your search engine, and Liquidator podcast T-shirts. And Chris Lepkowski now has. I can reveal, ladies and gentlemen, now has his Liquidator podcast T-shirts. How is it? I do indeed. In fact, I left it at the at the Barrister State. What? I, I had to go back and collect it. In my in my haste to get back after being stood up, in, in my haste to get home, rather after being stood up for nearly four hours, I I basically left as quickly as I could, and I left my t shirt. I had to go back and pick it up the next day. So uh, it was still it was still there, thankfully. Oh, yeah. So good. Nobody had nicked it. Brilliant. All right, Chris, look, no match next weekend. We'll be back to reflect on transfer window madness or not and uh, check up on how the season's going, maybe with a special guest or not. We'll see how things go this week. But anyway, see you next week one way or another. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Trot.